I really see like my little sister um, being able to break free from a lot of her phobias and I see her having like a family and healing as like a, a mother one day. I just, I see my older sister who's not a citizen being able to be like carefree. I know she's always so worried. So I see her being very carefree and I see her, you know, not having to worry about stuff and not having to always watch her back. This is part of Maria Estrada's dream. She's one of the 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country who for most part pay taxes, yet lack the benefits that many of us receive. With no status and worried about her future in this country, she's been one of the healthcare workers risking her life during the pandemic to serve you and I as a trauma nurse. Born in Mexico and brought to the States by her parents at the age of three, in this episode, Maria talks about her family's immigration journey, how they crossed the border, the ordeals they faced as an undocumented family, and how their entire life was impacted by a scammer. She will also share why she became a trauma nurse, the mistreatments she received along the way because of her status and the helping hands that lifted her up at the time of need. She also talks about healing, healing from her many traumas as an undocumented mama. So go ahead, grab your cup of tea, and join me in this episode of Empowering Conversations. Hello and welcome to the Empowering Conversations podcast a place to get inspired, challenged, and empowered by stories of immigrants who build their success from zero. I'm your host, Mehran. Based on our previous conversation, you came to the States when you were three years old with your family. Can you take us to your immigration journey and how you ended up in the States and why? I, um, I'm originally from Mexico. Um, actually, my mother and father lived in not Mexico City proper, but there are a lot of people who live outside of the city. And usually the background is very impoverished. My father and mother had a small stand where they used to like sell fruit and small snacks. Unfortunately, it got to such a situation where they really couldn't afford to feed the children. So I'm one of four children. And it became a situation of them becoming economic refugees. So my father actually had been crossing between the Mexico-US border for quite a bit of time before we immigrated here in the 90s. But I believe he started in like the 70s, 1970s. It was really easy to come in and out of the border. In fact, a lot of what's called illegal immigration was very much welcomed by the United States government. So my father used to literally walk across the border back and forth. But unfortunately, as time progressed, there was more militarization of the border. The border itself was being built up a lot more. So it became extremely dangerous. And he and my mother sat down and they made the decision to permanently immigrate to the United States. 
it's crazy to think that a lot of my origin story, I literally have no memories of it, right? Everything that I know is from what my parents have told me, what my older siblings have told me. But when I was three, I was crossed across the U.S.-Mexico border by my uncle. And my cousin has the same first name and the same last name. So I was literally crossed with her papers. Unfortunately, my, my mother, my father, my older sister, and my older brother had to physically cross into the U.S. Like I said, I have no recollection of it, but um, the few times that my mother has shared and my older sister have shared, they experienced a lot. They um, almost drowned. They had to swim across the Rio Grande. I'm also told that there were like dogs. When you have border patrol there, uh, they do active searches. So they'll have like search dogs. So eventually my father, my mother, and my sister and brother were caught at the border. They got taken into custody. And it's crazy to think that my mother was actually pregnant at that time. She was uh, about four months pregnant. And so all she remembers is just uh, being very thirsty, being very hungry, being very scared and almost drowning. But eventually through the kindness of the immigration officers, because my mom was just such a helpful person, even in detention, she was just like very courteous, very helpful. The officer told my mother, I have your husband in custody because the custody is usually different. They'll have women and children on one side and men on the other. So he told her like, I will drop you and your husband and the kids, I cannot drop you into the U.S., but I can drop you on the Mexico side of the border. And so they dropped them very close, very, very close to where the U.S. border was. And from there, they were able to communicate with one of my uncles, and there was a coyote involved, and just miraculously, they went through um, the U.S.-Mexico border. Oh, wow. So they were... They were dropped at the Mexico side, of course, and then they yeah. tried their luck one more time. Yeah, yeah, and they made it. That's how they got. Yeah. How many times prior to that had they tried? That was their first, and I know my father had crossed back and forth a lot of times, so I don't know how many times, um, but for my mother, my sister, my brother, and for myself, that was the last time we saw Mexico. Oh, wow. You haven't been there since. Well, I, I went back. So with advanced parole, but my mother and my father never went back. So basically, except for me, and I'll share with you, like I have a very unique situation being a dreamer and having had access to DACA. And my whole story is just <laughs> one of those crazy things. But for the rest of my family, yes, that was the last time that they ever saw home again. Definitely. That's very difficult to leave and know that you can't go back ever again. And yes, I agree with you. It's really difficult, especially me now as a mother. So I'm thinking like before I would hear these things from my mom, but then now, you know, I have my daughter and I remember being four months pregnant. I remember being extremely sick when I was four months pregnant. So I can't imagine leaving my own mother being pregnant because you're just so vulnerable at that time. And making that physical cross, my mother tells me it was the most terrifying and excruciating thing she has ever physically endured, making that cross. So I agree with you. And then knowing that there's a chance that you'll never come back. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't able to visit my family for almost seven, seven and a half years. And it was the most difficult time of my life. It's just the fact that you know you don't have that option is yeah. very difficult. Yeah. So 
What happened then? My my father's family is settled here, and actually, a lot of my father's family um, are U.S. citizens here. However, with my mother's side, so my maternal side of the family, the vast majority live there. In fact, I don't think I have any of my relatives from my maternal side who live in the United States. And it's so sad because just as my family entered the U.S., there was a big amnesty in the 1990s where, quote unquote, whatever we want to call right, undocumented or no status immigrants could file for citizenship. And my parents did. And they just had such an unfortunate situation because at that time, there were a lot of scammers. And so what happened is when they, a person who was just a notary claiming to be an immigration lawyer and charging my family so much money put false information on that application about how they came, about how long they'd been here. And when the, when the application was processed, immigration obviously rejected it and said, like, this is fabricated. There's no evidence of this. They questioned my mom and my mom is just such an honest person. So she told them that what had been filed was incorrect. And so for that reason, they did not become U.S. citizens. Oh my gosh, that is such a painful experience. Yeah. And to this day, I remember retroactively, like she requested to see the case file that had been rejected and everything. And just reading it, I'm 32. I read it two years ago. It's so heartbreaking to think that that one moment forever like changed the course of their their lives. I talked to you a little bit previously. It's just, I think nobody understands how anxious it is to be an immigrant and how heartbreaking it can be because everything is such high stakes. Like if you make that one little mistake on that application, or if you just say that one little wrong thing, the ramifications are just so severe. Wow. So are your parents um, citizen? No, right? No, no. Actually, my father passed away like around 2014, he passed away. And it's so heartbreaking to think that my father died, an elderly man, and he died from a heart attack. He, he was a day laborer. So he was working in uh, gardening and, and all of that. And it gets very hot in California. And as an elder man, he was working literally till the day he died begging for water. That's the last thing that his employer told us that he was just begging for some water. He went to try to get him some water. He came back and he was gone. Oh my gosh. It's heartbreaking. It really is. I know I talk about it like really calm and composed. Like I've run this like story over and over and I try to find meaning every time because I also don't think that things happen without meaning. So I just, I try to find gratitude in knowing that my father was such, he was such a genuine person, such a kind man. And he did the best that he could to provide. Wow. It is not easy. Now, tell us about your life after migration. Yeah. So um, a little bit about me. I'm actually, uh, so I was born in Mexico, but I was uh, raised in San Diego. I... I always joke because people will say, oh my God, San Diego is like, and it is, it's a great city. It's so beautiful and the beaches and we associate a lot of things we see in the media, but I actually grew up in East County. East County um, has a reputation for being a little rough. A lot of people who are lower income will settle there because rent is so much cheaper. I think I mentioned it to you, Mehran, like, you know that you're like Mexican, but you're never Mexican enough to be accepted by people who who are native to Mexico but 
I knew always that I was like not American. I think one of the first and very hurtful memories I have as a child, I was part of a, a program called the Lions, which is a Lions program where you do a lot of volunteer work and a lot of retired people uh, will volunteer their time and they provide a lot of services for children who are at risk and low income. And there was a senior man and I told, he asked about me, like, where you're from? And I told him, I'm from Mexico, all these things. And I remember he looked at me and he's like, oh, you're from Mexico, but you're not one of those illegals, are you? You're not an illegal. And I was like, maybe like eight or nine. I'm like, yeah, I, I know that like we're undocumented and all of these things. So I told him, yeah, of course not. No, I'm not. I'm not illegal. But I remember that being the first reminder of being illegal is bad like who you are, because especially at that age, right? Children are so sensitive. So I remember thinking, growing up, feeling a lot of shame and guilt, like I cannot tell people about me. They will not understand the pains that I've been through. When I think back about my childhood, that's what's really painful, feeling like you don't belong. That's, that's difficult, and you're right. I have, my son is about nine and a half, and everything that we say, he reflects back to himself mm -hmm. you know if you say this action is wrong mm -hmm. you think he's wrong he's bad yeah. and yeah that's very difficult to have to hide this huge part of yourself yeah yeah all the time absolutely I agree and then also just circumstances like it was really unfortunate but my parents really did live in a lot of poverty a lot of immigrants who are undocumented can only take certain jobs so most of the jobs they'll take for the women, it'll be doing domestic work. So a lot. So my my mother's a domestic worker. She does a lot of housekeeping. And my father, like I mentioned, worked in the fields. He was really good with gardening, um, working with crops, and all of those things. And so we rarely saw our parents. I I, <laughs> I remember once I got a little bit older and I started reading because I love reading. I feel like it's such an empowering tool. I would read all of these stories that are like about orphans, right? You have Oliver Twist, Anne of Green Gables, Harry Potter, like all of these books. And you have this common theme of there's an orphan child. And I remember thinking like, sure, I have parents, but I have those feelings. Like, I feel like I don't have my parents because I really never saw my parents growing up. And the few times that I did see them, they were so physically exhausted. They're so mentally exhausted. I think they're really spiritually exhausted too because they would never be treated like humans. The way they would be talked to, um, the wages, they were not treated like humans. So I just kind of felt like my parents were there, but it was like ghosts because their soul had been broken down so much. So it was really hard even just share, you know, usually you'll go to your parents if something's going on, like if something somebody hurt me at school or if somebody hurt me personally, but I think I just saw my parents suffer so much that all of the pains that I suffered, I would just keep to myself because I just didn't want to burden my parents. Wow. And that's, that's a lot to endure for a young kid. Are you a ghost to your child? Are you so swamped with work or multiple responsibilities that you forget about your children's existence and their emotional need? If so, Maria's story can be a wake-up call. Let's remember, we didn't come here and endure all we did to say our children are quote-unquote successful. 
that they are doctors, lawyers, or engineers who are traumatized and depressed from within, who feel lonely when they need us the most. I get it. Providing for family is difficult, especially in certain circumstances. But you know what is difficult? To do all that you do and later in life realize that you were chasing the wrong thing. Let's be more present. Let's seek mental support if we need to. Don't say I'm okay when in reality you're not. When you're battling depression, anxiety, and perfectionism, it's hard to be present with our children. Don't think you can handle everything thrown at you just because you handle difficulties of immigration. Our deep emotional wounds need to be addressed. Tabitha, my guest on 25th episode who healed from her sexual abuse, said it best. The trauma that is not transformed is a trauma transferred. Now your trauma might not be as deep or as severe as hers, but I'm sure every immigrant has experienced trauma somewhere during their immigration journey. So seek help. Heal to be present for your children. Coaching tip. Treat your mental well-being as a part of your annual checkup. If you need advice on creating the right work balance for yourself, let's talk. Don't wait. Don't tolerate. You are worth it. Your children are worth it. Now, what did they feel? Did they ever mention how they are treated or they were so exhausted that they never talked about these issues or they accepted it as a norm or they always compared back to what or they could have been treated back home. What was their impression? What was their thoughts and feelings? I reflect back and I realize like my parents never had any formal education. And I really do believe that having a foundation of education, reading, you cannot um, identify what's right and wrong and what's just and unjust unless we have an understanding of history, of um, philosophy, of all these things, right? Otherwise, all you see is what you'll think is normal. So my parents completely thought that the the treatment, if anything, was kindness from their employers, right? Even though they were talked to terribly, like they were not treated well. Um, I saw it firsthand because my mom and dad would take me to work with them sometimes. And I remember I wasn't doing too well in school. Um, I always had like ripped clothes and looked so bad. So I was always really ashamed to go to school. I did not want to go to school. I was made fun of a lot. I think a lot of children who look different and who you can tell may come from low socioeconomic status, they get bullied a lot. And that's one sector. I mean, there's a lot of bullying in school in general, but I think for me, that's what, why I got bullied a lot in school. And I remember my mom looked at me and she's like, you're going to work with me tomorrow. You're coming with dad and me. And they're going to pick us up because they used to always get picked up. They couldn't drive. They didn't have driver's license. And we had to leave like at 5.45 in the morning. And they took me with them. And they said, if you don't go to school, this is what the rest of your life is going to be. And so I remember they took me a few times. And after that, there was no issue with attendance. (laughs) I was going to school every day and on time. And I saw how hard they worked. So I think in part of it, they were thankful that they could survive. And as horrible as things were here in America, they were not as horrible as back home. Can you imagine that? 
but I think deep down they knew that there that there are higher aspirations for doing better. I definitely think that they believed it and they definitely pushed us for doing better. Can you tell us about the limitations that you faced as in you and your mother or your sisters faced as an undocumented? Yeah, it was really hard. So part of being undocumented, usually for for the people like you cannot work like a regular job, right? So that usually means you have to work a lot of jobs and it's usually really demeaning work. So myself, when I was in college, the only job I could get was like housekeeping. So I used to do a lot of housekeeping. It was very dirty. Um, and it was really unfortunate because sometimes when a person has a little bit more power and a little bit more privilege than somebody else, they don't even realize it, but they treat you like a lesser human. And so these were people that before I thought were like really kind and generous. But once I was in their home, um, the way they would talk to me was really inappropriate. The expectations they had of me was really terrible. The working conditions were very dangerous, actually, and inappropriate. Um, I, I'll give you one example. I remember one person who used to help us a lot. I had asked her, my mom was very sick. I said, look, I don't have a car. Would it be possible that um, you drive us? We have to go to the doctors. And she said, yeah, sure, I'll drive you. And she said, the only thing is you have to mop my floors in exchange for me driving you to the doctors. And I remember thinking like, what do you mean I have to mop your floors? Like, then that means we're not friends. I would never do that to my friend. I would never tell my friend, hey, yeah, sure. I'll go ahead and, you know, give you a ride anywhere, but you have to mop my floors. And I remember thinking like, I, that person, I just pray for them. I'm a religious person. So I pray that one day they may find in their heart that what they did was wrong and that they have to do a lot of soul searching because that's not how you treat another human being. I'm just thinking back, right? Like what does undocumented mean? It means people thinking that you're not a human being. Another thing is like I mentioned, a lot of anxiety, right? You're constantly afraid, like you could be stopped at any time by immigration. And that happened to me. I was on my way to work. Started working when I was really young. I think I was 12 going on 13 when my parents separated for a while. And there was a lot of domestic violence. And so the women, so my mom and the kids, we ended up getting an apartment. You can't even apply for government assistance when you're not in the system. So I remember my mother and my older sister looking at me and trying to figure out like finances. And I told them like, the only way we're gonna make it is if I get a job. And I did, I got a job. I got two jobs at that time. I remember there being like a lot of stress because you kind of have to grow up fast when you're undocumented, right? There's not a lot of safety nets. There's not, there's no family. We didn't have any other family. And um, anxiety, there's always anxiety. I know my, mo my mother's very anxious. How is she gonna pay for the rent? What happens if somebody stops her like immigration? It's happened to her, the immigration has stopped her. Thankfully, she's never been picked up. It happened to my sister and me. We were getting on the trolley and there was border patrol because that'll happen. Border patrol can sometimes get on the trolleys and buses. And they stopped us. And I mean, we look super young. I have an older sister. She looks younger than me. They stopped us. And we just kind of told them, like, we're going to our grandparents' house. But I remember that horrible feeling of, like, man, they could really pick us up right now. And we would be deported in Mexico. Now, you also shared with me the other day about the other difficulties or the other challenges that these, the children of undocumented, 
uh, immigrants face as you were volunteering at an organization. I'm going to share that with us. In San Diego, we have a really large Chicano uh, presence and then also undocumented. And so I was able to partake in a lot of these things in college, which is such a privilege. So I was part of a lot of organizations and one of them was um, the San Diego Dream Team. It was mainly composed of dreamers, like what we call dreamers, right? Undocumented immigrants that are in the edu higher education. And I remember we did a retreat. So we did a retreat, we were at a house and it was all of us. The first thing we had to do is get very comfortable with sharing our narrative. And some of the leaders in the group told us that the most powerful tool you have as an undocumented immigrant is to be able to share your story and your narrative. And I remember sitting down and there was one member who was very honest and she had shared that she's not undocumented, but that she feels very deeply for undocumented immigrants. And I remember judging and being like, why is she here? Like, she's not undocumented, right? Like, this is supposed to be a safe space. And I remember as we were sharing stories, it came her turn to share. She said, you know, I feel so deeply for people who are undocumented because even though I'm not undocumented, part of my family is undocumented. And when I was a young child, her, her mother's boyfriend um, had been raping her, had been molesting her since she was a small child and the threat he would always tell her is that that like that he was going to call immigration that he was going to make her mother go away by calling immigration and that fear of like your parents being taken away by border patrol by immigration is so terrifying as an adult now imagine telling that to a child and so that's why she never shared with her mother what she was enduring so this undocumented label, the maltreatment of immigrants, it doesn't just affect people who are undocumented, it affects their children who might be US citizens. It might affect their spouses who are US citizens. So I remember after that moment thinking like, this is an issue that this doesn't just affect me or my family. Like it affects all of society. You never know who might be in this situation. Again, it goes back to what kind of people are around us that do such things, right? I mean, someone asks you to mop their floor, a friend asks you to mop their floor for a small help that we do for our friends. Someone, you know, abuses and molests and rapes a child for no reason, because they believe the other person can't say much. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting you mentioned that because I see a lot of the pessimism and I think we talked, that, uh, talked about it. Like we can see how it's easy to fall into that negative space. But for me, I feel like, sure, I could go down that route and feel really bitter about life, right? Like, oh my goodness. Like, I feel like I didn't get much of a childhood. Most of my childhood, I was working. I was put in really unsafe working conditions. I was put in a lot of situations where I'm working with people who are older than me, right? And there's men as well. And they know I'm a child. And I was put in a lot of very horrible situations where I have nobody to protect me. I have nobody I can tell anything to because I'm not even supposed to be working here, right? Like, I don't have a social security number. And so you get put in these horrible, horrible, horrible situations. And yes, 
we can see the worst of humanity, but it also forces you to be in a situation where you have to be very wise in who you make friends with, um, in your relations with people, how you carry yourself. And you also have to believe in the best of people because I've shared some of the hardships, but I cannot count how many times people have been so generous to me, so kind to me, who have seen that I'm in such a bad situation and have gone so far and beyond. And that hope of the best of humanity is really what has changed my life and has helped me heal. Thank you for saying that because I was really going through that feeling that, oh my gosh, what terrible people were around. But you're right. There must have been a lot of amazing, supportive community around you to have lifted you up and help you to be where you are. We just heard about the importance of a community, the allyship that it brings. Unfortunately, one of the biggest pains immigrants endure is the lack of their inherited community where they could reach out to find a job, secure an opportunity, or simply feel connected. However, through time and strong communication skills, we can build it. And here are a few ways. One. Connect with super connectors and influencers, not to take away, but to add. Add value to their cause. Help them out with what they are passionate about. Support them and enrich their lives. Two, don't think too much. Just serve your community. Help people in need, genuinely. Sometimes all we need is an unbiased listener with an open heart. Three, step outside your comfort zone. Connect with people who differ from you, but share your core values. And you became a nurse at the end, out of all trauma nurse. Yeah, (laughs) I did. Why is that? I know you shared it with me and it's beautiful and it's inspiring but I would love I would love it if you share it with our audience absolutely so prior to to my father having his heart attack he actually became very ill um I hadn't entered the nursing program actually yet it's what really made me passionate about it my father ended up in the ER he no longer was able to urinate and he became so sick And we later found out that he had an enlarged prostate. It's one of the leading um, ailments that a lot of men have, actually. It's quite common. But because he did not have access to primary care, to any health care, we were never able to realize that he had this problem. And it was heartbreaking to know that once he was driven to the ER, part of the questions they ask you is to put your social security number and your information And when they were told in the ER that my father was undocumented, they rejected him. They told him to go somewhere else. And I remember thinking like, my dad is on the verge of like life and death. He's so sick. And to know that this system, at least at at that ER, my father's life had no value that they kicked him out of the ER. So my uncle had to drive him to another ER. He got treatment. But I remember thinking, like, how must my father feel 
in this country where he's been here for such a long time, where he's a respected member of the community. My father was actually a pastor um, in his congregation, somebody extremely respected, that they just kicked him out like you would kick out a dog. And so it was heartbreaking for me. It, was, it really was. And um, eventually he recovered. He, he was able to recover. He was in the ICU for a long time. His small problem had caught, caused him to go into MODS, which is mo multiple organ um, disorder where like multiple organs were shutting down because the backflow of the urine had shut down his kidneys. And then from shutting down his kidneys, there were other organs that were affected. And he ended up with sepsis, which is a severe infection throughout his bar body. And they, um, they had to uh, intubate him. I, I mean, it's crazy to think about it now because I'm an, I, like, I have that ICU nurse mentality. But at that time, when you don't know what's going on and you just see your father who's battling for like life or death, it was just devastating to know that somebody had thought that his life was so worthless that they kicked him out of the ER. And now you work in centers that help undocumented. Yeah, I do. Um, so I graduated from San Diego. I got married. And so I actually have my Texas license as a registered nurse. And <laughs> I applied as a new resident. And they told us when we did the application as a new nurse, they tell you, just don't even bother uh, applying for the trauma position because you can train in different areas. They don't take too many. And so you just should just forget about it. And I remember thinking like, I'm a pretty stubborn person. I was like, oh, really? I can't get in there. You know, I just kind of feel like all the time they'll tell me, you can't go there. You can't do this. I was like, you know what? What the heck? I'll go ahead. I'll put it down in my application. And to everybody's surprise, especially to me, <laughs> they called me back and I got that interview and it has changed my life forever. Just having that opportunity. I no longer work for the county here in at Harris County in, in Houston. Um, after I had my baby, I, I don't work in the hospital system anymore. Um, but I was able to train for two years and it was such a beautiful experience to face my fear. And my fear had always been that. What would happen if I have a loved one, right? Who needs desperate care and I can't help them. And I remember thinking like, once I finished my training there, it was such a liberating feeling to not fall into that victim mentality. We are not victims. We really are not. We are the key to success and we are the healing hands that we were looking for when we were in desperate need. And so I'm so thankful for that whole experience because I think I was able to work through my trauma as I was treating a lot of different patients. A lot of them were undocumented. Wow. I got goosebumps as you were talking about facing your trauma seeing all these people who were just like your dad and they were going through exact same things or similar issues. Absolutely. You wanted to give them the best care you could possibly give them. And I can truly tell you, and it's not a cliche, uh, every time that um, I would have a patient, I would think like, what if that were my father? What if that were my, my, my brother, my sister, my mother? And many of the immigrants who come through Harris County, it's actually very beautiful what we have here in Houston. There's a system called the gold card and it doesn't matter if you're a citizen or not a citizen. If you are low income, they will provide care at free cost 
because we believe in the social security net. We believe that the public system can help be a social security net for the healthcare system as a whole. And so for me, it was just such an awesome feeling, right? Like I, I really believe in the system to be at the bedside as a nurse and speaking to people in Spanish because I'm a native Spanish speaker and telling them in their own language that everything's going to be okay. Like you don't have to worry about costs. Right now what we have to worry about is your family member being at the best health situation they can be. That every single day I left like feeling like a million bucks. And that's something that your dad didn't feel. He was billed a huge amount of money. If I remember correctly, 150K? No more. It was closer to $200,000. Can you imagine being an undocumented wow. immigrant and you get a bill at home <laughs> that you owe a hospital system over $200,000? And I just feel so thankful because my sister, my older sister looked at me and she's like, we need to go down to the hospital and tell them like, look, we don't have $200,000. We are just, my father's a migrant worker. What can we negotiate? And I remember she did that and they just felt And at that time, I think the medical system can look different things at different places. I don't know what it looks like now in San Diego, but at that time when my father was very sick, the person who does the billing took a lot of compassion to us. They talked to us and they brought down the bill to about over $2,000, which we did payments for. Um, but yeah, that initial feeling of like, I mean, what do I do? I owe $200,000 to a hospital. That's so scary. Yeah. You said though that... Even as an undocumented individual, your application for nursing school was, was rejected or was yeah. faced some difficulties. Yeah. Do I remember that correctly? It, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was actually going to share that. Thank you for reminding me. So even, even getting the nursing degree, it took, it was a lot of blood, sweat and tears because I, when I first submitted my application, DACA had not happened. There was no DACA at that time, right? So that means there's no social security number, no work permit. And so I remember submitting my application and having that anxiety of the high stakes, right? Like what happens if my application doesn't get submitted? Like I'm limited, I can't go to any other university. That's the only university I can commute to. Um, is, does that mean that it's gonna be the end of my dreams? So I submitted it and it, I was accepted. I still remember getting that email. I was like crying big tears. I'm like, oh my God, congratulations, Maria. Yeah, I've been accepted into the nursing program. And I shared with my mom who was super excited, my sister. Right before orientation, I got an email back and they had requested for my social security number. And I told them, I said, hey, um, I made it really clear in my application. Like I even wrote it out. Like I do not have a social security number. And I remember the director at that time emailed me and he's like, I'm so sorry. Like, you're not going to be able to be part of the program. We just want to get your resignation letter, basically your withdrawal letter now so that we can give your spot to somebody else. And I remember feeling devastated. And the thing is, it happened like throughout my schooling, like even in middle school, high school, getting into college, because of that lack of social security number, you get reminded of like, you don't belong, you're not worthy. At least that's what the system 
may feel like on the other side, right? Like you don't belong here. You're not worthy. Can you imagine like your whole dreams and aspirations and via email, somebody just tells you, Hey, can you just let us know when you're going to drop so we can let somebody else know that they're worthy and that they can get into the program. So I'm just very thankful because I don't succumb to no's. Like when I hear no or all these things, I'm like, no, there's got to be a way. That's how I've gone through everything, right? Like that's how I've been able to work through a lot of things. So I remember I was really sad at first, but then I was like, no, no, this is not okay. Because I had joined a lot of Chicano organizations, a lot of Latino organizations, a lot of social justice movements. And I remember thinking like, if I sent an email to my allies, to people who are on my side, I don't think they would be happy with the nursing program and what they're doing. So I emailed the director back and I said, I said, I understand the predicament that you're in, but um, I would really like to talk to you so that we can figure out like how, how we can make accommodations and amends. He, he met with me and he was like, I'm so sorry, I can't do anything. That's when I had to get a little bit aggressive. And I told him, I said, look, I had stated very clearly that I'm not a US citizen and I feel like I'm being discriminated and I would hate to take legal matters and you know, file a case that I'm being discriminated based on my legal status, a case of discrimination. And so when I said that, things changed. <laughs> and I did. And I had a lot of friends who are like Chicanos, who are like lawyers, who I was like, if I reach out to them, and it was never my intention to sue or anything like that, like not at all. But I did want to let the director know that like I have a community who supports me. They will back me up. Like I will fight for this. It's worth fighting for because I know I'm going to be a great nurse and make a difference. So thankfully, like through the support and a lot of people wrote him letters and called them on the phone. Um, he let me in the program. That reminds me of something that you said the other day. You were a dreamer, but you weren't really allowed to dream. Yes. So um, with the DREAM Act, um, a lot of the undocumented youth who were attending college kind of took on that, um, the, like the term dreamer, right? And so you saw all of these like campaigns about um, dreamers and just the visions that they had. And I remember thinking like, oh my goodness, like I may tell people when I see them like, oh yeah, absolutely. Like I believe, yeah, this is going to happen, all of these things. But in reality, I remember thinking like, I'm, I'm lying to myself. I'm actually really afraid. I remember thinking like, how limited are my dreams that even when I go to sleep, I can't think of myself like traveling or seeing my grandmother. Like I, could, I couldn't visualize it. Even in my wildest dreams, I couldn't. And it wasn't until, honestly, I got married and, and I finished my degree and everything that my husband sat me down. And I remember I told them, like, my dream is to be a nurse. And you just don't, because I, I, I had to do my licensing. And it was a really stressful thing, like, doing licensing and passing that exam. I just felt like a lot of mental barriers. And he looked at me and he's like, Maria, becoming a nurse, sure, you can say it's your dream, but that's not really a dream. Dreams are supposed to be impossible. He looked me dead in the eyes. He said, it's possible. You can be a nurse now. You have, like, DACA. You can... He's like, no, a dream has to be something that nobody else has seen. It's only in your heart. It has to be like a wild imagination. And I remember thinking and I looked at him and I realized he was right. And I realized that even in my quote unquote dreams, I was really limiting myself. I really was. 
So now when I think about dreams and truly being a dreamer, I think about some really crazy stuff, <laughs> some really wild stuff that I think is possible. I really do. Do you want to share with us some of your dreams? Absolutely. I, I think part of my, my dreams is um, seeing like the, the older generation, like the older immigrants, the older undocumented women thinking past that they're just going to be housekeepers. Like I see my mother being an amazing entrepreneur because she's so passionate, right? And I realize that a lot of the reasons why she hasn't been able to progress is that she's been beaten down for decades, her whole life here, right? And even in Mexico. And so I see her not only driving, but like driving a big F-150, like a big old truck, you know, around because she has to get from point A to point B to... Um, work on her business and um, I see her traveling to her homeland and um, being the generous woman that she is and spending time with her nieces and nephews and with her brothers and sisters um, mental health has always been an issue in our community so I really see I really see like my little sister um, being able to break free from a lot of her phobias and I see her having like a family and healing as like a, a mother one day I just I see my older sister who's not a citizen being able to be like carefree. I know she's always so worried. So I see her being very carefree and I see her, you know, not having to worry about stuff and not having to always watch her back and count every penny. I really just see her, I don't know, taking a crazy shopping spree in New York. <laughs> this new person that I've become after marriage and, you know, achieving my, the dream that I had then, I just really see really big dreams for my family and for my community. That's that's fantastic. Are you now a citizen? No, I'm actually not. Actually, right now, I literally have no status. It's crazy. So due to the Trump administration, my immigration um, uh, application was delayed severely, like something that should have taken three months. It's now like almost a year and a half. You can look at it. My driver's license is expired. My work permit is expired. So I'm in this like limbo where I'm a registered nurse. If at any point somebody came to my house, they legally could deport me today. Oh my gosh. So you still have that feeling of uncertainty, anxiety? Yeah. A, li a little bit, I do. But I also know that everything happens for a reason. And I'm very strong on like community. And if God forbid something like that happened, I just pray to God that, um, it just brings to light how broken our immigration system is that me, who I've been here since I was three years old, it's almost going to be 30 years ago that I've been in this country. And as somebody who really loves community and believes in service, even somebody like me, who is a property owner, who has her cars like outside in the garage, who I think is an upstanding citizen, even I could be at risk for deportation, even though I'm a registered nurse and would give my life easily to serve the better of the community and the health like that is how broken our system is wow and this is something that you have done during covid 
correct. Wow. Yeah, correct. It's, um, it's definitely sad and it's quite unfortunate, but I too believe that the best is ahead of us. And I have faith that your process would be much faster in this administration. And as you mentioned, things work out for the best. Is there anything that you wanted to share with our audience? Yeah, just one last thing. Um, I think it's a beautiful thing that now I'm processing what it means to be an immigrant in America as a mother. I never knew what my mom went through and I still cannot understand what she's gone through. I used to feel really frustrated with my mother. Like, you know, like, why don't you do more? Or like, but now I realize that we should be really gentle with ourselves, with the people around us. In 2014, after my father passed away, I uh, went through like a severe mental health crisis. I think it, I just felt like everything crumbled around me. And I really thought I would never be able to heal. I, I had a diagnosis would be permanently disabled due to mental health problems. Like I was diagnosed with depression, anxiety. Um, the psychiatrist had told me that I was suffering from severe PTSD. I went literally a year and a half without being able to sleep because I was so traumatized. And once my father passed away, a lot of my childhood memories I had suppressed came flooding, right? Like a lot of things that I didn't even know were there. And now that I know it's like a protective mechanism that children and people have where the memories are so painful that you literally store them somewhere. Transitioning to becoming a mother like really helped me heal from trauma. And I'm so thankful all that I had gone through before because I had a very traumatic uh, pregnancy and birth. My daughter was extremely sick when she was born. She almost passed away. We're in the NICU for a long time. And I remember thinking, I'm so grateful that I've been through all these things and that I've been able to heal because now I feel like my life is my child. I, I want her to not have to deal with a lot of the trauma that I had and to just preserve her innocence and her childhood. I just want to give her everything that unfortunately was not there for me. And this child who will have like confidence and unconditional love. And that way we're like not building from fear or from deficiency. Like we're really building the future from altruism in the highest form of achievement. So that's, that's my goal, inshallah. I want her to know that she's worthy, she's loved and that she is a real dreamer. Whatever her wildest dreams are, I hope, I pray she never has any limitation. And like you mentioned, the limitation is often in mind. Thank you very much, Maria. This was, this was truly heartwarming interview. And I am blown away by your courage and by your positivity. A lot of people think that I am positive, but talking to you, I'm like, I have a long way to go. <laughs> no, no, no. Thank you so much. You have a talent. I want to let you know, like, usually I'm um, a little hesitant to share because without meaning to, sometimes when people interview, they might go a little too far. or They might say something that's hurtful, but I really think you have a gift. I, I see it. And 
I'm so thankful that you're creating this forum to share the most powerful thing we have as humans, which is sharing our story and sharing other people's stories. It's the longest tradition, right? Folk stories, and it passes on generation, and you have the gift. So thank you. President Biden's immigration proposal would create a path to citizenship for many undocumented immigrants like Maria and her family. Soon, her wild dreams will be a reality, and she is free to dream even bigger. Soon, children won't be molested or raped for the fear of separation from their loved ones. Soon, someone can attend their dream program without having to worry about acceptance or financial aid. But while that is going on for 11 million migrants, we are hearing about more illegal crossings, more families starting this journey. More children and more minors are at the mercy of our communities and our government. What should be done? Should they be sent back home or should we let them dream with us in this great nation? There are many aspects to this and different viewpoints. But what is important is treating every individual that is living among us with dignity and respect. Regardless of status, every human legally deserves to be respected. As always, thank you for listening and sharing this episode of Empowering Conversations with your immigrant friends and your Facebook community. Until the next episode of Empowering Conversations on the 15th, write me a review. Stay masked, stay safe, and don't throw away your shot.